0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A motorcycle ride in the country. A chance to get away from it all. For anyone that's ever escaped on their own cycle on a Sunday afternoon, you know the amazing feeling, the wind, the noise, and the smell. Mike Thevis and Roger Underhill were out riding motorcycles on a Sunday in August 1973. They were enjoying an afternoon out, following the winding roads that hugged the Chattahoochee River, not far from Thevis's mansion. they even stopped to look down at the annual raft race running down the river.
1: He was coming down Riverside Drive which is a a curvy road on the river in Sandy Springs outside of Atlanta and he was following Roger Unhill to our home on Powers Ferry and um he came around a curve and lost control and tumbled down to this embankment full of rocks and debris. I and mean, it was a huge embankment, and he was banged up.
0: He fell 60 feet down the embankment hitting rocky concrete left over from recent construction. Friends found him down on the cliff, hanging from a tree. Thiebus suffered severe injuries, including a broken leg and a hip left so damaged that it was nearly destroyed. Officers arrived on the scene to assist. They asked for his license, but the pants pocket had been ripped off during the accident, and Thevis's wallet was nowhere to be found. Thevis said he was given two citations that day, one for driving without a license, the other for driving off the roadway. With a larger-than-life personality and scores and scores of arrests already, police couldn't resist giving him citations that day. Even at the worst of times, it seemed Thevis couldn't catch a break. Barely lucid those first few days, doctors and family thought he was close to death. Joanne kept vigil at the hospital, often sleeping on a cot at night and making sure Mike was taken care of.
2: All nurses to the nurses
0: station. He lived in a body cast for months, enduring countless painful surgeries, all the while stuck at the hospital. Everything was happening around him, yet he barely had the desire to live.
1: It's a miracle he lived. He once told me that he asked one of his associates to bring him a gun, he just wanted to end his life in the hospital, he's in so much pain. But he didn't, he went through it, but he was in a wheelchair for probably two years after that. I think that's, you know, the only reason he didn't go to prison earlier is because of that accident. The government couldn't take care of him properly and he just was literally in a
0: hospital bed. Diva still had all his businesses to run. But who exactly was running the businesses while he was recovering? Businesses primarily based in cash. Even after he got out of the hospital, life was hard. Despite being told he might not ever walk again, Diva slowly got back on his feet, walking with crutches or a cane. He was also often seen sitting in a wheelchair. His recovery was not going to be easy. Even before the accident, Phoebus had been fighting hard to break out of the porn business. Those months in the hospital helped clear his mind. He needed to make a change.
3: Judas Priest, which um, we're thrilled. Uh, it's got great sales. I know they're going to rock it out. I know it's going to be a lot of fun.
0: This is Lee Burns. Lee works at the Fox Theater, and she recently gave me a tour of the spectacle that is the Fox. The Fox Theater has long been the pride and joy of Atlanta, a majestic venue for opera, concerts, movies, and well, everything.
3: We're currently standing in the Egyptian ballroom, which has the heaviest of our Egyptian motifs. And, you know, the columns and the scarab details at the top. And, of course, these beautiful lotus flowers. So painstakingly designed and built in 1929, and you think about the level of craftsmanship that went into a building, not only of this size, but just the materials alone, and finding that that joy in creating something that was just so unique to our city at the time.
0: But in the early 1970s, the fox was in disrepair and needed help from the community to keep from being torn down.
3: children collected pennies at school and took them to banks and turned it into cash and turned it over to the fox. And um, college students had parties here in the Egyptian ballroom to raise money to save the fox. And I think as an Atlantan, even more so what is so significant is that really the Save the Fox campaign, while there was preservation, of course, happening in our city, this was this was an event that really changed the course of our, our city's preservation history, to save a landmark. What went into this community of Atlantans and even further out across the state, you know, coming in and saying this building is significant, it's part of our home, it's part of our future.
0: The Save the Fox movement had started led by Mayor Jackson and Coretta Scott King. But Mike Phoebus wanted in, too. What exactly was Thebus's motivation?
1: He truly wanted to save the Fox Theater. There was a big movement in Atlanta to save the Fox Theater, and he was very much involved in that, and he wanted to save
0: that. He called a press conference at his house to announce his intentions to save the Fox, The video footage is striking. It's a rare glimpse for the public to see inside Lionsgate. Thevis was still in a wheelchair from his motorcycle accident. At his side was Joanne, silent and stone-faced.
4: Yeah, I'm not interested in a Fox theater. I don't feel like I can make a living with a Fox theater. But I think I would be one of the few individuals who could get it to a point to where it's at least breaking even and supporting
0: itself. Thevis told Mayor Jackson he'd buy the Fox for $3.3 million. He said city officials approached him about setting up a private entity instead, one that would save the Fox, but hide his involvement. Phoebus refused.
4: And I could use a facade. I'm not interested in... If they don't want to sell me the Fox Theater, it's fine. I made the offer because I wanted to do it for the city and for the people in the city.
0: He seemed irritated by the negative attention his overture was getting with the community.
4: And that's one of the things that I'm trying to clean up. There's no doubt in my mind that they are are nervous at best about having to do business with Mike Beavis. But he
1: wasn't going to pay for it if he didn't get the recognition of it. And the business community did not want his money. They only wanted it privately to save it. But the politicians didn't want the porn king saving the Fox Theater. One could argue that he really didn't want to save it. They only wanted to save it to get the notoriety. But I know for a fact he wanted to save the Fox Theater regardless.
5: The Fox Theater situation remains on dead center. Following the voluntary six-month moratorium last month, Thevis has apparently been the only one to come forward with an offer. However, Thevis says he's waiting until the final outcome on his pornographic conviction before moving any further on the deal. Thiebus was scheduled to appear in Jacksonville Federal Court today.
0: Did Thevis really believe he could single-handedly save the Fox Theater and get back in the good graces of the local Atlanta community? The timing of the announcement felt suspect, especially as the final appeal on his interstate pornography convictions was quickly approaching. But Thevis didn't stop there. He even offered up Lionsgate, the dream home he had built for his family just a few years earlier, the home he had paid for in quarters from his adult business.
5: This is the multi-million dollar mansion that Mike Thevis is offering the city, on the condition that it not be resold and that it be used for some type of children's home.
0: He said if he was going to go to jail, he might as well offer up his sprawling estate as a school for gifted children. Let's face it, he said, if I go to jail, I sure as hell won't be needing this house. And I don't want my family staying here, inviting every coop that passes by to try and kidnap them or something. But where exactly would his family go? And why was he suddenly giving up on the house he had moved into just a few years earlier? Thieves was feeling the heat, and it seemed like he was starting to panic about heading to prison.
5: Thieves insists that his reasons for the offer are more philanthropic than economic. He says Atlanta has been good to him, and he's wanted to do something for the city for a long time. And then he adds, maybe I'm trying to clean up the slate. His lawyer says that means he wants to tie up some loose ends. This is Jim Hickey at the Thieves Mansion.
6: well, of course, he also tried to get into legitimate businesses. But it's harder to make money in record producing. It's harder to make money in movies. It doesn't always work. He's certainly not going to get people to back him, given who he was. So like with many criminals, they find out that there's a reason criminality is so profitable and other businesses are difficult to make uh, money in. But he was he might have been able to do it. There are people who have done it. Obviously, the Prohibition uh, liquor suppliers, I mean, families well-known, the Kennedys, the Bronfmans, may have had side businesses that were not 100%, but were also in legitimate areas, or, and maybe totally went legitimate. You could have been a liquor supplier during Prohibition, and then you become a giant in the field. So that's, that's happened, yes, people have done that. There's a long line of them that needed to show off that needed to boast, that liked being celebrities. Al Capone was an early one, very well known. Obviously, in, in later times, John Gotti was that way. Phoebus had those same inclinations. He wanted to be known. He wanted to be a public figure. He was not shy. I could tell you about dentists and doctors and others who are drawn in by the film industry in particular and they lose everything they had. I mean, it's the famous line about uh, the wine industry. What's the, the easiest way to make a million dollars in the wine industry? Start with 10 million. And Hollywood movies are the same way. I've known a lot of people who maybe not quite as smart as him, but pretty smart, threw away a lot of money that way.
3: Are you serious about movie making? Do you want to be a movie mogul?
4: I don't know about a movie mogul, but uh, I'm very serious about the movie-making. In fact, we've moved our facilities from
6: MGM in Hollywood to Atlanta. Who wouldn't want to be a movie mogul? Yeah, of
0: course. I mean, if that would have been as profitable and it would have worked. What better way to stay in the spotlight than launching his own movie studio? Phoebus craved the attention Hollywood could bring him. And he hoped it would distance him from the Porno King label that followed him everywhere. Mike Phoebus, it seemed, was going legit.
1: The music and movie industry leads to a Hollywood type of a career with you're getting press and recognition and accolades and FaceTime on, the, on TV and in print. I think he needed that recognition. Well, that was all in an effort, again, to get out of the pornography industry and go legit, and he did go into the movie industry. Oliver Stone was one of the first um, directors he worked with and financed one of his first movies.
0: Thieves had been working behind the scenes on Hollywood movie projects, putting up the cash for the movies Blood of the Dragon and Oliver Stone's first movie, Seizure. Don't ask us who we are or where we come
6: from. Our only purpose is death. Now one after the other, the rest of you will die. There will be darkness, damnation, and a meaningless death
2: we know your secret we read your mind
6: you can never run from it you can never hide from it some breath stopping panic of
0: seizure rated pg one movie, Poor Pretty Eddie, was going to be his big bet in the movie business. It starred Leslie Uggams, Shelley Winters, and Troy Donahue. Devis was convinced the movie was going to be a hit.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to present famous recording star, Miss Liz Weatherly, singing our national anthem. I need some help. My car broke down.
2: good-looking woman like you shouldn't be out here traveling alone. Well, you uh, you come to the right place, man. We'll fix you right on up. You
4: tell an idiot who I am. It's a
2: genuine celebrity. Now, I first heard of this movie called uh, <laughs> Poor Pretty Eddie. Well, that's one of its titles. I first heard about this movie Poor Pretty Eddie.
0: Um, maybe about a decade ago. This is Ryan Stockstad. Ryan reviews films for Pop Culture Beast, and he knew everything about this era of exploitation-style movies.
2: Um, the guys who run the Alamo Draft House in, in, uh, in Texas uh, brought it up here to the New Beverly Cinema, the theater that Tarantino runs and programs now. And uh, that gives you an idea of the kind of crowd that goes to these things, you know. It's a grindhouse, uh, drive-in kind of cinema. And uh, they they brought it with a bunch of other sleazy, trashy, southern fried kind of uh, hick exploitation movies, and uh, I had no idea what I was in for. And it's so bonkers and so over the top and wonderful and wrong footed in every way. Uh, but but it's the kind of thing that you, when you see it, you just say, "Well, I got to tell people about this movie. You got to see this movie." Leslie Uggams is certainly trying to. Uh, do something good. She's famously very disappointed with <laughs> the results. She said at the, uh, um, the cast and crew screening, she saw it for the first time. She thought, that's the movie we were making?
1: They were all money losers. Poor Pretty Eddie was a horrible movie, but now it's such a bad movie that it's like sought after because it was so bad as a work of art. And he lost 10 million on that movie, according to him. So uh, I think that he quickly got out of the movie business. My biggest memory of, of Michael, my dad, is his music business, which gets very little press. And that is he spent a great amount of time at GRC Records in the Sound Pit Studios in Atlanta trying to transition into the music industry and spent millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to become legit and stay in that business and have recording
0: artists. Phoebus continued to put his cash to work, funding not only the movie and music businesses, but also stores. And land was he simply expanding his portfolio, or moving cash between the businesses?
1: He had um, the Ambassador Restaurant, which is a pretty large restaurant in Buckhead back in the day. He owned a gift shop called the New Yorker with my aunt Georgianne, and um, him and Roger Underhill owned all the land that Epcot Center is on today in Disney World. So he was a very good real estate speculator, clearly, at that time.
4: And we now have uh, proper facilities for even editing and dubbing and things of that sort, which we did not heretofore have, which are housed in, uh, in the entertainment complex with General Record Corporation that I also own. And the Sound Pit, which has uh, facilities for uh, overdubbing screen work and, and this type of thing, and we're very serious. The Sound Pit alone was an investment of a million and a half dollars.
0: Fiva said his one true love was music. He self-funded GRC and launched a series of labels focusing in on R&B and country artists. Thievas loved getting behind the board and helping with the recording sessions. GRC, Aware, and Hot Lana were among the labels. A recording studio called Sound Pit Studios was built for over $1 million. Soon, offices popped up in Nashville, Houston, Los Angeles, New York, and even London. Thevis was spending big bucks to become a legit music producer. He purchased billboards all around Atlanta advertising GRC and was starting to get buzz in the music industry.
1: It was a really cool studio. It was kind of an underground studio in an old building, classic 70s rock building with a big old oval glass window in it, and it had a soundproof interior, and it was really neat to watch the recording artists do their thing. I do remember meeting Gladys Knight in there once. He had R&B artists in there all the time. He was going to make Atlanta the recording industry of the South. He was putting Atlanta on the map, and he was one of the first, you know, this is a, a white Greek Orthodox person, and he had no racial animosity towards anyone. He never saw anyone as black and white.
0: John Denver, the Eagles, Kenny Rogers, and Kool and the Gang were some of the breakout artists of the 1970s. And Mike Phoebus was looking for his own star to boost his label to the next level. He thought he found that star in Sammy Johns. Johns had a huge record for GRC called Chevy Van, a rock and country ballad mega hit about a one-night stand in the back of a van. It was perfectly in tune with the cool vibe and open sexuality of the 1970s. The song was recorded in 1973, But it went nowhere for the next 18 months. The record was re released and entered the charts in February of 1975, just over a month after Mike Thebus was sent to a federal prison. The record sold a whopping 3 million copies and reached number 5 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts in May of that year. But who was running the labels with Thevis in prison? And how were Sammy Johns and the other artists going to get paid? Thevis had signed artists from all walks of music, soul, country, R&B, funk, and even gospel. But not all the artists were aware of Thevis's reputation when they signed with his label.
7: I'm Steve Acker, I'm formerly the lead guitarist for a band from Youngstown, Ohio, called Law. Uh, Law was formed in January of 1971 We were a three-piece band With uh, the drummer's name Steve Lawrence He was an L I was Steve Acker I was an A And the bass player was Mickey Williamson's And he was the W So it was our initials L-A-W And in, uh, in the beginning That's how we spelled it L period A period W period um, And we were like an, We were a boogie rock band A power trio uh, Very, very danceable Mostly original stuff right off the beginning, right off the bat. And we were immediately a huge hit in Youngstown. Gary Laconte told us, hey, there's this label in Atlanta called GRC that wants uh, interested in signing you. But we were excited about that. We were ready to make a record. We had a stockpile of original material. Uh, we had our act together. We had everything together. So, um, so they did sign us and we went to a party at Michael Thevis's home in Atlanta. I remember that because it was considered the largest home mansion in Atlanta. And I remember what I remember, uh, that he had flown in cases of Coors beer. They, they they weren't pasteurized, so uh, it became, uh, all over the country really, it was a status symbol. If you had Coors beer flown in for your party, you were somebody. In other words, you were the bomb. And so we just thought he was a, a rich, cool guy spending a lot of money on us. And we went in the studio in the summer of 1975 to record our first album at the Sound Pit in Atlanta. I remember one day waking up, Michael Thevis had been indicted, arrested and indicted and charged with interstate pornography charges. And that was pretty shocking, of course. I mean, as I said, I, I think we had suspicions that he was involved in some shady stuff, but we did not know.
0: The news was not good for Law and the other acts on Thebus' labels now that he was off to prison. What would happen to their music? And where did they go from here? But Law's connection to Thebus didn't end there.
7: I mean, I think the next thing I remember happened is that we went to Lexington, and he wanted us to come and play for him. So we went to Lexington Federal Penitentiary... Kentucky, and did a concert in the yard. It was a beautiful day. It was toward the end of summer. The album was done. And there's Michael Thevis at a picnic table, and all these comics everywhere. And he's laughing and smiling, clapping his hands and everybody. It was a great show, and it was very
1: unusual. He was... Uh very much into wanting to make that work. Unfortunately, it didn't. Um, but it was a huge money loser for him. So I think Chevy Van was the only thing that really did well. And even that was small potatoes compared to what big artists are doing, back even back then. He, he told me he lost $10 million on that project, but he, he, he was trying very desperately. He, he very much wanted that to succeed.
0: Gangster House is created, written, and hosted by me, Jason Hope, and is a production of Imperative Entertainment. Shane Freeman is lead engineer with additional editing and production support by myself, Jasmine Cross, and Stephen Warner, with audio mixing provided by Resonate Recordings. Recording sessions at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta. Claire Martin and Elizabeth Egan are story editors. Cover art and design by Trevor Eiler. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives. University of Georgia and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia Original Music Score by Brandon Bush The Old Days Are Gone performed by Law and written by Steve Acker originally released in 1975 by GRC The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Gin Music Group Chevy Van performed and written by Sammy Johns originally released in 1973 by GRC The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc., music licensed from Ginn Music Group. Jefferson Lee, performed and written by Sammy Johns, previously unreleased. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc., music licensed from Ginn Music Group. Love the songs from Gangster House? Check out the new playlist on Spotify. Just search Gangster House. Some segments recorded using actors to recreate scenes based on this true story. For more information, exclusive photos, or tips on this story, visit gangsterhouse.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Gangster House. If you love the show, tell a friend and leave a review. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. Thanks for listening.